I'm going to set these right here. All right, how's everyone this morning? Huh? Uh, I was afraid of this, see? Everybody's not awake yet. Somebody told me I to ask, I've been asking people, um, you know, last week after the service to switch, you know, how it was, and I had somebody, t- somebody tell me, well, it was tough because, you know, I'm used to, like, getting woke up during the music, and then when you preach, it doesn't put me to sleep as fast, you know? And so they went to sleep a lot faster than normal when I was preaching, so we've we got we to wake up. And the first thing is, you know, some of you just need to learn to drink more coffee. You need to get your right life with God, and you need to confess this not drinking coffee thing. You know, ten cups would just do amazing things on Sunday morning. So you've got to work on that. Uh, second thing, let's, uh, let's do this. This morning as we begin, uh, we'll pray in a minute, but before that, let's uh, find somebody you don't know, you've never met, or you don't know their name. Uh, you know, maybe somebody you're supposed to know their name and you just have forgotten. And shake their hand and say, uh, you know, it's good to follow the Lord today and to worship together. So take get two minutes. Find a friend that you don't know. If you could uh, start making your way back to your seats, that would be great. Try this again. How is everyone this morning? Ah, see, uh, I can tell you a little more, a little more awake. All right. Yeah. Just right downstairs. If you didn't get your coffee yet, you know, you better go down there. It's cooking. It's ready. Help yourself. All right. Let's um, let's look to the Lord in prayer as we 
begin this morning as we look to his word. Lord Jesus, we do thank you so much for the fellowship that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, that because of your good work in our life, we can have a level of fellowship and friendship that the world can't even imagine. And we just thank you for that. Uh, We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. Uh, We thank you for your Holy Spirit. And we pray that your word and Jesus and the Holy Spirit would be uh, the ones guiding our service and our heart and our thoughts this morning. That that's what we would be seeking and that's where our attention would be. We ask that you would minister to us. Uh, We are all just vessels and tools in your hand. We lay our lives at your feet for you to use us to minister and to bless Uh, most of all, to bring glory to your name and to lift up uh, the precious name of Jesus. So we commit this time to you this morning and bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this morning as you uh, came to church, as you uh, are living your life, what what are you looking for? What are you looking for? Um, That's the question that Jesus asked uh, his disciples early on, and we're going to see that in John chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn to John chapter 1. Uh, the world certainly is looking for a lot of things. The world's looking for success, happiness, wealth, um, you know, the right girlfriend, the right boyfriend, the right husband, the right wife, fame and glory. What are you looking for? Uh, what are you looking for to fill your life and give you purpose and meaning? Um, do you even know what you're looking for? Uh, Jesus asked, and we're going to kind of start in the middle of this story because it's such a great question. We're going to actually be looking at verses 19 through the end of the chapter. Um, but uh, in the middle of this story, uh, a couple, what turns out to be a couple of Jesus' disciples come to, to Jesus and... Uh, They begin to follow him, and in verse 38 it says this, Jesus looked around and he saw them following, and he asked, what do you want? Now, of course, you could read that a lot of ways. It could be, what do you want? Or it could be, what do you want? Uh, Literally, if you translate that verse, he's really asking, what are you looking for? The Greek word that's used there is to look or to seek something. And it has the idea of seeking something in earnest. What are you seeking, he asked them. What, you know, you, you're starting to follow me, you're coming along behind me. What is it you think I can do for you? Why is it you have come to me? What are you searching from me that you think I can do for you? And that's an important question. Um, because what you seek has a lot to do with what you find or don't find. And in this passage in John chapter 1, especially the second half, um, John sets a pattern that happens throughout the book of John. In the book of John, there's basically two kinds of people. Those who see Jesus for who he is and follow him. And those who do not see him and consequently do not follow him. And in this chapter 1, he starts off setting this pattern where already people, some see Jesus and some understand who he is and get a glimpse they don't understand fully yet. But they get this uh, picture that Jesus is somebody special and they follow him and they are looking for what Jesus is. Others are very religious, very spiritual, um, would say they're looking for a Messiah, but they don't see Jesus. And it comes out in the story, they're really looking for something different. And it's very important that we are clear about what we are searching for. 
because it will affect what you find. Uh, many, many, many years ago, I worked at a, at a Bible camp, and one of the things that Bible camps are notorious for is uh, they become the inheritors of many great estates. Okay, what that means is when people are about to take their stuff to the dump, they think, oh, you know, instead of taking it to the dump, I'll let it be used for God. I'll give it to the Bible camp. And that way I don't have to pay to have it hauled away because they'll just show up and come get it. And so the camp was furnished with all kinds of lovely, you know, early turn of the 18th century junk, right? And every building you would go into had this kind of uh, very interesting decor of early junkyard, uh, you know. And so it was easy for stuff to kind of get camouflaged and you just kind of, kind of got numb to this old kind of worthless junk that really did belong in the dump. Well, one day a lady came to us who had been at the camp and, and she was all excited. And she said, that painting that's in that one building, you know that painting? I'll go on that one painting, painting. And you know, we had junky pictures all over the place and we're thinking, there's no painting there. She goes, no, there's this, it's a print. It's not a painting, it's a print. It's a very rare print of a very famous artist. She said, it's probably worth about $2,000. And we're going, no way. No, no way, there's nothing in all of camp that was worth two bucks, much less $2,000. She goes, no, no, and she took, she had it verified, she had it checked, and sure enough, this is a very rare print, about a hundred and some year old print, a very famous artist. We didn't see it because we weren't looking for it. But she was an art trader, an art dealer. She was an expert in this kind of stuff. She, she recognized right away the artist. She knew who it was. She knew how old it was. And she saw this treasure because she was looking for it. We missed it because we weren't looking for it. The same, team, same thing is true in our life. What we are looking for will depend a lot on what we find. And in this passage, John makes it very clear that what we find in the end is extremely important. Uh, so let's look, let's uh, begin reading. Let me review just a little bit. Uh, chapter 1, verse 14, uh, John says, So the Word became flesh and lived here on earth among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son of God. John makes this amazing promise that when Jesus came, it gave the opportunity for us to see God in a whole new light. And in fact, to see God's glory in a way that it had never been displayed before. And last, night, last week, last night, last week, we talked about, you know, are we seeking to see God through Christ? He affirms that again in, in verse 18. He says, No one has ever seen God, but his only Son, Jesus, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart or in the Father's bosom, has come from the Father's bosom. He has told us about him. In other words, Jesus makes it possible for us to see God, to encounter God in a whole new light, in a whole new way that was not possible before. And that's largely why Jesus came, to reveal all that we could know about God, to make him visible to us, so that now we can see Jesus, we can see God in a new way. But the question is, is that what we're looking for? Are we really looking for Jesus? Are we really looking to see him in a greater and deeper way in our life. Well, uh, John continues on in verse 19, and he begins with a group of people that thought in their own minds, yeah, we are looking for God. If you were to ask that question to the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they would have said, sure, yeah, we're the head of the church, we're the preachers. We, we, you know, we do church 
You know, once a week is not good enough for us. We do church every single day, morning and night. We take this religion stuff very seriously. We are seeking God. And not only that, but we are seeking the Messiah. And so John starts with this group, and this is what he says. This was the testimony of John when the Jewish leaders sent priests and temple assistants from Jerusalem to ask John whether he was the Messiah. He flatly denied it. Well, if um, he says, I am not the Messiah. Well, then who are you, they asked. Are you Elijah? Nope, he replied. Are you the prophet? No. Well, then who are you? Tell us so we can give an answer to those who sent us. What do you have to say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah, I am a voice shouting in the wilderness. Prepare a straight path for the Lord's coming. Then those who were sent by the Pharisees asked him, Well, if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet, what right do you have to baptize? John told them, I baptize with water, but right here in the crowd is someone who you do not know, who will soon begin his ministry. I am not even worthy to be his slave or to untie the, uh, his sandals. This incident took place at Bethany, a village east of the Jordan River, where John was baptizing. Uh, the religious leaders did not see Jesus. And uh, they, they missed him altogether. And John makes it very clear they missed him because they were looking for the wrong thing. Um, now, you would say, well, they were looking for the Messiah. I mean, isn't that the right thing? Wasn't Jesus the Messiah? Wasn't he the anointed one? Well, they were looking for a Messiah, but it's very clear that they weren't looking for Jesus. They weren't looking for the Messiah that God would send and did send. Uh, they were the, the leaders of the day. They were lo- the leaders in the temple. And in that day, they also constituted the leaders of the nation. They were both the, Jew, the, the religious leaders as well as the religious leaders. And they had a responsibility for the political welfare of Israel in that day. Um, and they came, actually, it's interesting, the main leaders didn't even go. And of course, John was out in some far remote, distant wilderness area, a long walk in a hot desert. So, you know, they send up some flunky guys, you know, some grunt laborers. Now, we heard about this guy, this John guy. We've got to go check this guy out. So they dispatched this, this group to go check him out. What were they looking for? Well, they were looking for a Messiah, and they asked, Are you the Messiah? John says, no, I'm not the Messiah. In fact, uh, he flat denies it. The wording there is very strong. He says, I confess I am not, I, I, I'm not him, I, I confess it again. I'm not the Messiah. He makes that very clear. Well, then are you Elijah? And uh, it would have been prophesied that Elijah would be a forerunner to the Messiah. So that, well, maybe you're Elijah. John says, no. Uh, interestingly, Jesus later affirms John's uh, role as Elijah but John himself didn't see himself in that light. He says, no, I'm not Elijah. He says, well, are you the prophet? Are you the one who would prophesy this coming one? No, I'm not a prophet. Uh, John basically gives no credence to anything about himself. In no way calls attention to himself. He says, I'm none of those things. Well, they said, you know, we're, we're confused. And in their questioning, they really reveal a lot about what it is they are looking for. These guys were looking for a Messiah who would be 
another King David. They saw the Messiah as one who would bring political independence to Israel. They were looking for somebody who would take their leadership role to the next level. A great leader with great power, perhaps, you know, with like some really cool tricks and lightning bolts that would slay the Roman Empire and defeat their enemies and set up Israel as an independent state where they could worship, they could have their temple, and most importantly, these important guys could be made even more important. Okay, where they could hang on to their role as leaders, as important people, as big shots in Israel. That really is what they were looking at. And as we look through the Gospels and even in John, that becomes more and more obvious and apparent. Uh, In many ways, Israel in that day was a lot like the situation in Burma. Maybe not quite as extreme, but it was much like that. They saw themselves living under an oppressive government. They saw themselves not having any freedom or democracy. And, you know, democracy is simply the right and freedom to get rid of people you don't like and put in people you think you like, who in the end turn out to be other people you don't like. That's what democracy is. And uh, they wanted that. They wanted to be able to install their own government. And uh, from time to time, like in Burma, they would go and have protests and, and walk up and down the street, and, and pretty much the Roman government did what the Burmese government did. They just killed them all. And they didn't like that. And they were looking for some way out of this political situation. They were looking some way out of this oppression. And rightly so. And um, you know, we do feel for the situation in Burma. We feel for people anywhere who be, are being oppressed. And uh, they felt the burden of that oppression. Uh, and they understood that a lot of what was happening to them was, was unjust. And there had been rulers, Roman rulers, who had desecrated their temple, who had messed up their worship. And so they saw, then they were looking for a solution to that problem a political solution to a political problem. Uh, But it was very clear that they were not looking for Jesus. Uh, They weren't looking for the true and living Messiah. Because in John's Gospel, those who seek him, find him. Those who do not seek him, do not find him. And John says to them, finally, he says, well, what, what authority, what right, which by the way shows something else they're looking for. What right, what authority? Who, who puts you in charge? They were very much looking to protect their control, protect their power base. Uh, They were threatened by anybody who didn't exercise under their authority. So they're all worried about that. And John simply says, why? I'm simply a voice calling in the wilderness. He says, I baptize with water. It's true. But there is one standing right in your midst that you don't see, that you don't even see. Uh, He is the one. Um, they missed Jesus because they really weren't looking for him. Um, Interestingly, if these guys are truly leaders of Israel, if they are truly concerned for the spiritual welfare of Israel, instead of looking for position and rank, which is what they were looking for, they were looking for a Messiah who was regal, who was majestic, who came with authority and power, who had titles, you know, who was like maybe a PhD or maybe he won the Nobel Peace Prize, which just got given out this week. Uh, they were looking for somebody with credentials, right? Somebody with a name and a title. Jesus had none of those. And John didn't buy into that. What should have they been looking at? Well, instead of, and, and John, John simply says, look, I'm just the messenger. I'm just the voice. 
and he quotes the Bible, he quotes Isaiah. He says, I'm just the messenger, that's all I am. I'm not the prophet, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the Messiah. I am a messenger sent to declare this message that you better prepare the way because God is coming. And in fact, he is right here in your midst and you don't see him because you are not preparing yourself. You're not preparing your heart. You're not preparing your mind for the coming king. And he says quite simply, uh, you know, I'm just the messenger. Interestingly, throughout the whole book of John, the leaders were never interested in the message. They were never interested in what John had to say. They were never really interested in what Jesus had to say. Uh, they were looking for people, they were looking for important, significant people, instead of being tuned into the message of the gospel, the message of truth that God was sending. And so it all went by them. Um, John says, I am preparing the way. Uh, the question he puts before them is, how prepared are you guys to meet God? He's standing right in your midst and you're missing him. Are you prepared to meet him? Obviously they weren't. Um, how prepared are we to meet Jesus? Later on, Jesus accuses the religious leaders. He says, you call yourselves sons of Abraham. It doesn't mean anything. You are resting secure in your spiritual heritage, but you are not prepared to meet your maker. A lot of Christians are in the same boat. It's so easy for us to think, I'm a Christian. I prayed a prayer way back. I did the whole, you know, confess my sins thing and Jesus came into my heart and I got baptized. And we're resting on that, but we're not really seeking Jesus. We're not really preparing our hearts to meet him. The question goes to us, how prepared are you today to meet Jesus? Uh, if Jesus were to come today, how prepared are you really to meet him? Uh, the simple answer would be, are you willing to let go of the sin that's in your heart and life? The reality that these guys thought they were religious, they thought they were spiritual, but later Jesus identifies them as people filled with sin, filled with rebellion against God, filled with pride, uh, self-righteousness. They convinced themselves that they were so good when in truth their lives were filled with darkness and sin. These were spiritual people. These were people that you would have looked at and said, well, these are like the religious, you know, A-team. But Jesus said, you're nothing. You don't even see me because you are not tuned into my message and you're not preparing your heart. John's baptism, he doesn't, uh, in the Gospel of John, John does not speak about John the Baptist's baptism. The other Gospels tell us it was a baptism of repentance. He would baptize those who we're confessing the sin in their life, dealing with the sin in their life. That's the preparation. The preparation is being honest about our unworthiness to be in God's presence and preparing our heart, longing for holiness and purity and godliness in our life. Um, and amazingly and frighteningly, they miss him. He was right under their nose and they did not see him. Uh, you know, one of the things that we really need to guard ourselves against and be careful of is that, like them, it's so easy to get caught up in, 
human rights issues, to get caught up in other problems, our own needs, poverty. Uh, around us are all kinds of problems. In our own life are all kinds of problems. In our own poverty, our own oppression from like our boss, uh, our teachers, you know, people we work with, uh, our own struggles. And we want a Jesus who will come be kind of like a magic guy with a magic wand that will fix all of our circumstances. But we don't really want him to deal with the heart issues of our life, the deep-seated issues at the core of our being that cause all these problems. That was the problem with the religious leaders. They wanted a quick fix to the outside problems, but they weren't looking for somebody who would come in and radically overhaul their heart. We've got to be very careful. And I, and I believe in social issues. I believe we have to help the poor. I believe we have to be concerned about orphans. I believe we ought to pray for Burma. But Burma's independence and, and becoming a democratic country won't change anything there eternally because that's not the ultimate problem. The ultimate problem is all of them, the protesters on one side and the government on the other, are equally under the darkness and blindness of sin. And they need redemption, not democracy. And I pray for democracy. I pray for the oppression to end. But the real problem is not democracy, it's sin. And it's needing God's redemption in their life. Uh, they weren't looking for that. And so when Jesus came, they missed him. So if that's the wrong thing, how can we be sure we're looking for the right thing? Uh, well, first of all, we need to be looking for uh, the solution to that problem, the sin problem. Uh, Continuing on in verse 29, it says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one I was talking about when I said, Soon a man is coming who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before I did. I didn't know he was the one, but I have been baptizing with water in order to point him out to Israel. Um, Throughout, and it's, it's, it's unfortunate that it gets lost a lot in the translation, but throughout this chapter, John plays around a lot with the word see, to see, to look, to behold. It keeps popping up. And he's reminding us that, you know, we are seeking something. People are looking for something. And he says here, as Jesus walks by him one day, look, behold, take a close look at this person. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What was John looking for? John the Baptist. Well, I believe John the Baptist was looking for a Messiah who was a Lamb who would take away the sins of the world. For John the Baptist, that's what the Messiah was about first and foremost. One who would solve the spiritual darkness and death that, that pervades through all of humanity. He was looking for one who would bring freedom from the bondage to sin and death. Um, and he says, he describes, and you know, we, we, uh, we've heard this term. How many have heard the term before? We'll do a survey, quick survey. How many of you have heard or used this term that Jesus is the Lamb of God? Anybody? Just about everybody knows that term. I just read recently, they asked a group of college students at actually Wheaton. Sorry, Eric. Uh, at Wheaton which is a very good, good um, school, they asked students there who the Lamb of God was and why that was significant. 
And uh, a number of students answered, Jesus is the Lamb of God because he's gentle and kind. Okay, wrong answer. Okay, wrong answer. That's not why he's the Lamb of God. He's the Lamb of God because he takes away the sin of the world. He is the sacrificial Lamb of God. Uh, interestingly, though, and we were familiar with that, we know that term, uh, even though, sadly, a lot of college students may not quite get the full meaning of it. In John's day, however, that was not a popular or common term. In fact, uh, it was very unusual, a very unusual title or description for Messiah. And if you had heard John use it the first time, you would have been scratching your head going, okay, say that again. He's the what? He's the what? They were looking for a lamb. And it's true that one of the characteristics of a lamb is it is kind of gentle, passive, and meek. Um, scholars are very debated about what John was thinking. Was he thinking about a Passover lamb? Was he thinking about like, you know, a lamb for atonement? Was he thinking, what, what lamb was he thinking about? Well, nobody can decide. And uh, so I have my own theory. Actually, I, can't, I don't really know either. I don't have a clue. But maybe this psalm captures it. Psalm 42.22 says, But for your sake we are being killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. Um, you know, one thing about a sheep, and, and the deal is, when they offered sacrifices in the temple, a sheep was only one of the sacrifices. Uh, a much more impressive sacrifice was a bull. Now, if you want to make a statement about a sacrifice, you know, a sheep, it's weak, it's stupid, you know, they're, they're kind of annoying, you'd like to kill them anyway. You know, a bull is strong. A bull represents really a considerable amount of money. If you kill a bull, you've made a sacrifice. It's substantial. Uh, it's, it's not easily led. Okay, a sheep blindly and stupidly goes to the slaughter, bleeding along, bah, bah, they're about to kill me, bah. You know, a bull fights. You know, you put a bull ring in its nose, and it'll drag you places. You know, you've got to have some strength to contain this. But, but John describes him as a lamb. And it really is an amazing picture of Jesus going somewhat helplessly as this weak, uh, weak sacrifice. Not that he was weak in himself, but it's this, it's this picture of the suffering servant. Not this great and powerful king who made the sacrifice, but Jesus coming in humility. Jesus coming in really the most shameful and dying the most shameful kind of death. Not a noble death. as just a stupid sheep being led to slaughter. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John says clearly, and he focuses that the deepest and darkest problem, the real issue of humanity, is our sin. And John in his own life recognized that above all else, he didn't need a political solution. He didn't need a financial solution. I mean, this is a guy who did not need politics or money. He was living out in the wilderness eating grasshoppers. You know, he had pretty well abandoned all that stuff. But he recognized that what he did need was somebody who would deal with the sin in his life, who would take away permanently the stain of death and sin that had corrupted his soul. He knew he was a sinner and he knew he needed life that came through an infinite eternal sacrifice. And so he saw Jesus and he declared, Behold, look at this! The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And even I'm sure John had no idea what that would ultimately mean. Um, but he understood that that was the issue. 
Are we looking for, are we really looking for an answer to the problem of sin? Are we really concerned about that above everything else? You know, honestly, in my own life, I would have to confess that far more often, I want Jesus' help to be a financial solution, uh, to be a protector, to be a source of safety and security, uh, to make me look good, to make me healthy. Uh, Dealing with sin in my life really isn't necessarily the first option. In fact, I find that when I talk to a lot of people who are not believers about Jesus, one of the great fears is that, well, if I become a Christian, I'll have to give up sin, right? I'll have to, I can't go to the bars anymore and do all the things I used to do. If, if Jesus comes into my life, I've got to, like, change. And the reality is, sin is too comfortable for them. Sin is too favorable for them. And the reality is they don't want a Jesus who will deal with the sin in their life. Because they quite like the sin in their life. And the last thing they want is a Jesus who would deal with that and confess it and pour his blood over it. A Jesus who would require them to confess those things as evil, abhorrent acts that, that are against God himself. And that are a, um, a violation of his holiness. You know, it's interesting, and again, I don't want to come down that I'm not in favor of of social grace. I believe we as a church ought to be giving generously. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, to poor, to needy. We ought to be a source of help. But it's interesting, you know, when the tsunami hit a couple years ago, uh, it, it, it brought about this amazing outpouring of money as this wave of destruction swept over this whole region and killed many hundreds of thousands of people, people responded with millions of dollars. Millions. And it was the most generous outpouring of, of, of giving towards any need ever. And uh, it's, it's a good thing. A wonderful thing. The sad thing, though, is that there is a wave of death and destruction sweeping over the entire world at this very moment. It's called sin. And it is wreaking death and destruction at a far greater level. Because when this wave hits and it kills you, it sends you into eternal death. Its destruction is permanent. It is eternal. It is real. And and the reality is that when you talk to people that we want to be a lifeline providing help to a world that's being swept away by a wave of sin and death, people go, yeah, that's nice. We'll, We'll applaud you. We'll pray for you. Here's like 50 cents. Go to it, you know. Do we really see sin as a serious problem? Do we really see it as the root cause of every evil in the world? And are we seeking its solution through Jesus Christ as the most important thing we could invest our life in? So that when we give, when we help, when we serve the poor, when we do all these things, it is simply an avenue and a path to bringing people to the reality that they are dying and desperately in need of Christ's salvation. That's what John was about. And he said, that's who Jesus is. Ultimately, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, So John was seeking redemption above all else. And uh, he pointed out Jesus as as a means of redemption. How do we know if we're seeking that in our own life? Well, first of all, we should hate the sin in our own life. We should be honest about the sin in our life, and we should hate it. Now, just because you hate it doesn't mean you don't still sometimes play with it. It's amazing how we are that way. And the reality is that our flesh loves sin, 
but our spirit and our soul should hate it. And there ought to be within us this constant war going on where we do things that make us sick about our own, our own sinfulness. Things that we deeply regret. regret, regret. <laughs> and that we, we long to have dealt with. Okay? That we long to have Christ come into and remove those things. The sad truth, though, far too often, we have those sins that we hate, but we have those sins that we like and we hold on to. And we play with and we toy with, and, and we keep them far, far too close to us. And the reality is we are not seeking Jesus' redempt, redemptive purpose over those things in our life. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. If we're truly seeking Jesus as, a, as an end to sin, then we have to be regularly spending time in confession, honestly before God, saying, God, this, you know these things in my life, that I realize bring grief to your heart. Please help me remove those things. Please, by your Spirit. And we're not talking here about man-made righteousness. We're not talking about a holiness that's man-made. The Pharisees had that, where they thought they were spiritual because they had checked off their own checklist of external things, but they weren't looking at their heart. Uh, confession is coming before God and bearing your heart, saying, God, I want to open all of my heart before you. I want the light of your truth to shine in it. And I want your Holy Spirit to show me, convict me of the things in my life that are not right. Seeking the end of sin means seeking that in our life. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've done that. I do that. Uh, I do not like the things that God spotlights. But as I do that, as I confess those things, as God shows me those areas in my life that I wasn't even aware of that were revolting to him. The blood of Christ covers those things and there's forgiveness and there's change, there's healing, there's transformation. Uh, so it's looking for the end of sin. Also, we have to be looking for the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. Um, John continues on and he says this. He says... John said, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting upon Jesus. I didn't know that Jesus was the one, but when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me, when you see the Holy Spirit descending and resting upon someone, he is the one you are looking for. He is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I saw this happen to Jesus, so I can testify he is the chosen one, or the Son of God. Um, it's interesting, John himself didn't see Jesus at first. Uh, and this is significant because John and Jesus, as we know, were cousins. And they probably grew up together at, from time to time as children at like family reunions, you know, Thanksgiving dinner. You know, uh, they were about the same age. They were just a few months apart in age. They, they probably hung out a lot. Played softball or cricket or, I don't know, soccer, you know, in the backyard. Uh, they grew up together. And so when John went out and started baptizing and he saw Jesus, he goes, hey, cuz, what's up? You know? And uh, glad you, know, you could come. And, and, uh, and there they were. But John says, I didn't, know who, I didn't know it was him. I did not see it at first. Well, how did John come to this revelation? How did he come to this truth? Well, God revealed it to him. And God says, this is the sign. You will see the Holy Spirit descend 
and rest upon my chosen one. And uh, John, as he was baptizing Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit came down, rested upon Jesus, and John goes, whoa, he's the one. The Holy Spirit's right there abiding and resting on him. Interestingly, John uses the word abide, an important word for John. We see it in John 15. If you abide in me, it's that word. It means relationship. It means constant abiding and presence. Uh, the Holy Spirit just, didn't just come on Jesus and then leave. The Holy Spirit came and throughout the Gospel of John, it's very clear that Jesus is doing ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit. You might think, well, that seems kind of silly. Jesus was God. He created the universe. He was, we just heard this whole thing about it. He's the Word. He's with God. He's like created the world. Everything was made. Why does Jesus need the Holy Spirit? Well, because He came in human flesh he chose to put on himself the same limitations that we have and he chose to operate while he was doing ministry in this world through the power of the Holy Spirit. It was by the Holy Spirit that Jesus ministered and, and carried out his life work just like we do. Uh, and John saw the Holy Spirit come upon Jesus. John saw him filled with the Holy Spirit and by that sign... John understood and knew that Jesus was the Messiah, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, that he was the chosen one of God. Um, and it was by God's doing that God gave him this glimpse. We don't know, and it's not really very clear in the Gospels, in any of them, who actually saw this dove-like image uh, of the Holy Spirit descending and falling upon Jesus. All we really know is that Jesus knew of it and John the Baptist knew of it. Uh, we don't know that the crowd standing around were going, ooh, wow, cool. <laughs> it's this dove falls. We don't, we don't get that sense. Uh, maybe they saw it, maybe they didn't. But John saw it, and it's very clear that it had meaning because God himself revealed it to John. Uh, and, and, and that's the, the work of God revealing, showing us again, seeing and confirming this truth. And John goes on to say, that this one on whom the Holy Spirit rests, he's the anointed one, he's the chosen one, but he is also the one who will baptize with the Spirit. John makes it very clear that his baptism is not uh, such a big deal. He says, I baptize with water, but one is coming, this one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and it was significant for John, it was significant through the Gospel, that Jesus would do his ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, are we looking for that empowering work in our own life? Are we seeking to live our life by the power of the Holy Spirit? It's an amazing thing. You know, Jesus, Son of God, God incarnate, created the universe and the world, and yet Jesus himself, while he was on earth, chose to live and work and operate by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm thinking, I'm not real bright sometimes, but I'm thinking... If Jesus needed the Holy Spirit to live and do ministry successful, successfully, I really need the Holy Spirit. If Jesus needed him, I need him like a million times more. Uh, are we hungry and pursuing with all of our heart the Holy Spirit's work in our life? Are we looking for that? Um, throughout this chapter, some key themes are the Word, the person of Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Those themes will come up over and over again in the Gospel of John. The Word, the truth, exhibited in the life and person of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. What a great picture of what our lives ought to be. 
filled with God's word, in relationship with Jesus Christ, and empowered by his Holy Spirit. Far too often, uh, speaking for myself, I do work and do life in my own strength, not in the power of the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, again, the religious leaders should have been looking for this. They should have been looking, you know, we want to see marks or signs of the Holy Spirit empowering and working in powerful ways through a person. That's how we'll know who the Messiah is. That's not what they were looking for. Uh, But John was looking for that by God's leading, and he saw the Holy Spirit as a a confirming sign upon the Messiah. Uh, We cannot overcome sin. We cannot live uh, in holiness. We cannot walk in obedience unless the Holy Spirit is surging in our life. Uh, And you say, well, you know, I've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. It says, you know, when we get saved, uh, Jesus promises that for all who believe, who trust in him, we get the Holy Spirit, and that's true. Uh, The Holy Spirit comes the moment we we put our faith and trust in Jesus. Uh, In fact, that's not really possible without the work of the Holy Spirit, as it was with John, giving insight and truth to see who Jesus is. But it doesn't stop there. It ought to be an ongoing daily experience where we are seeking the infilling of the Spirit in our life. Where we are seeking His power to move in and through us. Uh, I need, you know, I'm, I'm like, the Holy Spirit's like water. You know, I get thirsty quite often. And if I don't drink, you know, pretty much I die. Uh, the Holy Spirit is an ongoing daily filling where we drink Him in through faith, through prayer, and through His Word. Lastly, so they're looking for, okay, help me out, I've forgotten already. Uh, they are looking for problem to the end of sin. They are looking for Holy Spirit. Yeah. Lastly, they are looking for someone to follow. We should be looking for someone to follow. Verse 35. The following day, John was again standing with two of his disciples as Jesus walked by. And John looked at him and declared again, Look, there is the Lamb of God. And John's two disciples turned and followed Jesus. And Jesus looked around and saw them following. And he says, What do you want? What are you seeking? What are you looking for? And they replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? That's kind of an anticlimactic answer. Jesus, where are you staying? It kind of kills it. It's like, Jesus, Rabbi, we come to worship you. No, they go, well, where are you hanging out these days, Jesus? Well, uh, it it has a little more impact and power than that. Uh, John's declaring, you know, he declares it again. Maybe this is an everyday event. As Jesus would walk by, he'd say the same thing. I don't know. Look, the Lamb of God. And standing beside him were two disciples. It turns out to be Andrew. And we don't know this for sure, but most likely John, uh, the author of the Gospel. Uh, John, throughout this Gospel, goes the painstaking effort to not name himself. And uh, this is one of those situations where, you know, Andrew is named, but the other one's not. So it's very likely it was John and Andrew. Interestingly, they had come under John the Baptist's ministry. They were guys who were preparing their hearts they had received this baptism of repentance. They were looking for the Lamb of God. They realized the problem was with sin. And they were looking for that solution. And so when John said, there it is. Behold, that's the one. 
They saw it. Now, how do we know they saw it? Well, of course, you know, three years later, they were willing, well, kind of, to die with Jesus. And, uh, and uh, after the resurrection, after the Holy Spirit came upon them, they became the pillars of the church, the great apostles. Uh, you know, it's obvious that's where they went. Um, but interestingly, even here on this first day, it says the two disciples turned and followed Jesus. That can be read two ways. It can mean literally uh, they saw him go by and they just started walking after him. Kind of like, you ever done this? Like you don't really know where you're going. And so you look for a guy who kind of looks like they know where they're going and you just follow him. You think, I don't know where I'm going, but that guy looks like he knows where I'm going. I'll just follow him. Like, you know, when you need to find the bathroom and uh, that guy just looks like he's going to the bathroom. So you follow him. And you end up, you know, at Sizzler. I don't know, it doesn't always work. But uh, they could be taken that way. It was like, well, they just followed Jesus. But the word that's used there also is a word that's used for a follower. It's a word that's used for a disciple. And uh, if you were to call somebody a follower, a, a disciple, you would use this word. And that's the word John uses there. And there's some sense that that really is what they're doing. They're not just walking along behind Jesus. They're not just lost. They're not just seeing where he's going. There is within them a heart and desire to become a follower of Jesus. Well, how do we know that? Well, because Jesus sees these two guys following him. And interestingly, it says Jesus looked at them. Uh, not all translations translate it very well. But it says Jesus took a penetrating look at these two guys. He paused for a minute and he looked at them and he looked in their eyes. And Jesus was aware that these two guys have in them the makings of a follower. And he says to them, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? Are you just looking for a political revolutionary? Are you just looking for a quick fix your problems? Are you just looking for the bathroom? What are you looking for? And they answer, Rabbi. They answer, Teacher. They answer, We are looking for somebody to be a guide, a teacher, a leader in our life. We are looking for someone to follow with our whole life. In those days, a rabbi wasn't a teacher like it is now. Um, when you followed a teacher, it was a serious commitment. In fact, in this passage earlier, John says, you know, Jesus is a teacher, is a leader, who I am not even worthy to carry his sandals. Uh, that's significant because in those days, if you became a follower of a rabbi, you became his slave. And you were like expected to carry his books, go fetch his lunch, carry his water... You're, you were you his slave, basically. And you, you would do anything they asked, except for a few restrictions. And one of them is you would not carry their sandals. That was even too lowly for a, a follower of a teacher. But John says, this teacher is so extraordinary. This teacher is so far beyond everything. I, I am not even worthy to be the slave who would carry his sandals. And that really is the sense of the disciples as they seek to follow this Jesus. As they as they say, Rabbi, teacher, uh, where are you staying? Kind of a bit anticlimactic. But the word there, again, John uses is the word abide. The word that's used in John chapter 15, and if we've read through the book, we already know this part of the story. Those who abide with me and I in them, you know, we shall be one, you will bear much fruit. Part of discipleship is being in an abiding relationship. And it says, Jesus says, and this is great, in the Greek it says simply, Jesus said, come and see, and they went and saw. Jesus says, come and see. Come and see who I am, come and see where I'm staying. 
And it says they went and they saw where Jesus was and they hung out with him the rest of the day. They were looking for a relationship. They were looking for somebody to invest their life in, to lay their life down before. You see, in those days, to follow a teacher meant to lay aside your own agenda, your own goals, your own thoughts, your own ideas. You submitted yourself to the will of that disciple maker, of that rabbi. You became not just a pupil in school, but you became a life learner, and you modeled your life after that person in every way. And they said, that's what we're looking for. We are looking for a teacher, a guide for our whole life. And that's borne out as these men gave up their jobs, gave up their fishing nets, followed Jesus day by day by day. They saw where Jesus was living that day, and from that day on, they were what? Abiding with Jesus, walking with Jesus, on many dusty roads, spending time with Jesus, in relationship with Jesus, following to the cross, following Jesus. Now first go around, you know, the whole cross thing didn't go so well. You know, Peter said, Jesus, I will die for you. And in his heart, he meant that. In reality, without the power of the Holy Spirit, he couldn't do it. But next time around, after Pentecost, Peter became, and John and Andrew became fiery witnesses of the gospel, who did end up going to the cross Uh, going to death, following Jesus, abiding with him even after the resurrection, following him as Lord and Savior and King. Um, what What does it mean to really seek something? What does it really mean to, to seek something, to want something? Now, I hope and pray that you can honestly say in your heart, I want Jesus. I I want him because I want him to deal with sin in my life. I want him because I want um, his power. I want his Holy Spirit. I want him to be Lord over my life, and I want to follow him. I hope you want that. But what does it really mean when we say that? Um, I have a few passions in my life. I pray the, the number one one is Jesus. But I have some other ones that are right up there. And one of those is climbing mountains. And uh, for me, it's kind of a bit of a sick obsession, actually. And uh, I don't know what it is, but when I see a mountain and I see the top of it, I just am possessed to climb it to the top. And uh, several times this has got me in in big trouble. And I know it's a passion in my life because when I don't meet that goal, I get terribly disappointed. I remember one day I'd taken a bunch of kids on a trip. We were up in this beautiful mountain valley. And right there was this big peak, 14,000 foot. I hadn't climbed it yet. And I thought, here's my chance. I can see the top. I'm going to climb this mountain. Problem was, it was early in the spring, and it was mostly covered with snow. And within a few minutes of walking, I found myself in waist-deep snow. And uh, it was crusty on top, but it wasn't crusty enough to hold my weight. So I take a step, and I break through up to my waist. And uh, that did not slow me down. I was determined. And I start crashing through the snow, determined to get to the top of this mountain. And everybody's going, what are you doing? You know, get down here. And I, I labored and I labored and I slaved and I slaved and I made it like about a fourth of the way up the mountain. And I realized there's this whole busload of kids waiting for me at the bottom. And I'm going, man, I can't do this. And I turned around and I went down and I was sad and depressed. And I, I was disappointed because I didn't, I didn't get to the top. In fact, I went back later and climbed it after the snow melted. I had to get to the top. 
numerous times, it's almost cost me my life, this obsession, because uh, I've done stupid things because I want the top so bad. Now, I don't know what's up there. You get up there and it looks the same on top of virtually every mountain, I guess. I don't know what's there, but it's just something in me I've got to do. Well, is Jesus that way for us? When we say we seek Jesus, is it that kind of driven passion of our life? Jesus says, what are you seeking? What is the driving passion in your life? What is it you hunger after more than anything? Are you willing to really make me rabbi, teacher, who is your life guide through everything? Uh, at this point, there's no promises. Uh, later, he gives us some great promises of what that means. At this point, all these guys know is this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's all they know. But they want that. They want Jesus and they're willing to follow him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we, uh, we want to start right now even with just a time of confession. Lord, as we open up our own heart before you, we want to ask, are we preparing our way for Jesus to come in? Are we preparing our heart through honest confession of sin, of things in our life that we're holding on to, that we're not submitting to your will, of areas that we are holding back because we really don't believe in your promise and in your goodness? Maybe we don't really see how devastating sin is in our life and that the end of that sin is death. Lord God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would even now just reveal to us those things in our life that need confessing. Lord, I pray that it really would be the passion of our heart that above every other passion, above every other thing that we long for and seek for, that what we would seek above all is to know Jesus not as some quick fix to all of our outside problems, but as the ultimate cure and solution to our deepest heart problems, to one who will reorder our heart and soul, who will make us new and clean from the inside out, who will cleanse and wash away every wretched sin in our life by his blood, as the precious lamb that was slaughtered for us. Lord Jesus, make us people who see you. And help us remember that uh, those who see you follow. To see Jesus is to become a follower of Jesus. Uh, following you is not an option. Lord God, I ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us that by your Spirit we would see you, by your Spirit we would see the sin in our life, and by your power through the Holy Spirit we would see radical transformation in our life. Where we pray and seek these things. I pray that you give us even a deeper hunger for them moment by moment. 
We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This time as we uh, have the worship team come up, uh, we'll also ask the ushers to come. And we'll ask the preschool parents to go pick up your preschool children. Shall we all stand? Your mercy 